We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Joe Saxton, author, speaker, and thought leader, joins Jim Lyon to discuss how empowering women is key to a stronger country, church, and culture. Last Christmas, uh, my wife and I uh, found ourselves in London because I have four adult sons and uh, some of them got married. Three of them got married in those pesky in-laws the, the, the women they married, they have families that want them at Christmas too. I mean, what's up about that? I thought we would have them every Christmas. But anyway, <laughs> so we're in a routine, so every other year. And this one year, we didn't, we didn't have our kids. But we have one son who's not married, and he works for a global enterprise and found himself in London. He said, Mom and Dad, would you just, would you, just, would you meet me in London because I'm by myself and I know my brothers aren't with you? And my wife and I just kind of off the cuff in a way that I would never do, flew to London. I'm saying all that to Joe Saxton because Joe Saxton was born and grew up in London. And yes. I'm, I'm just telling you, London was a win. I just, I've yes. been to London many times before, but I'd never been there at Christmas. And it just was dazzling. What do you think? Are you missing, are you missing London at Christmas? Oh, I'm, I miss London probably every day, but, but yeah, you're right. There's something pretty special about Christmas and New Year in London. Um, it's all the lights and things. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a definite win. That is, that was a definite win. I would recommend that to everybody. Although I don't go back at Christmas now because it's so expensive, but, uh, <laughs> and seeing all the family everywhere. Yes, yes, of course. But it's a wonderful thing to do. But when you say you miss London almost every day, just what, what do you miss about London? Um, I miss, um, I miss walking everywhere. I, I miss public transport. <laughs> There's that. There's that. I miss the bus, the tube, and the train. I miss um, the fish and chip shops for sure. I miss the cosmopolitan nature of London. That there are so many. Like it takes a while to find an actual Londoner sometimes mm-hmm. when you're yes, there yes. in certain parts because the world has gathered around it. Um, I miss I miss being able to walk into a like where I grew up in South London, just south of the river. So when I was going to school and running across a bridge, it was I could see Big Ben as my timekeeper to tell me I was late, and it, I was late, <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, I really was. And and I miss going into the National Gallery and knowing where my particular things are, and just there was so much. It was a beautiful place. If you have um, to grow up somewhere, why not London? That's what I'm hearing you say. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, that. so now I have to ask, do you ever watch The Crown? Uh, oh, do I ever? <laughs> the question you want to ask yourself is, Joe, how many hours does it take you to watch an entire series? And is it true <laughs> that if, if it comes out on the Sunday, you're always done by Tuesday? And the answer is yes. Yes, and, I am. And, and so you're ready for the next season that isn't even up yet. Oh, yeah. And it's going to be a doozy, friends. Let <laughs> me just tell you, I know this podcast is about other things. I know it is. And we will get there. But I'm telling you, because this from from season four onwards, I was alive when it was happening. Yes, and you what's lived to it. Come, what's to come is a hot mess. Fascinating hot mess. <laughs> There's so much content. There's so much drama. I mean, so why much. hasn't someone made this before? I, I mean, 
they probably just need a little distance in the time, but wow. And of course, for those who don't understand The Crown, it's a Netflix series which is tracing the life of Elizabeth II, the Queen, and mm. uh, it's kind of going decade by decade. And uh, my family has been watching it uh, all over the place, and we're kind of joking now, well, are they just going to walk out to the ultimate finale where in the last episode, actually, the Queen and Prince Philip themselves appear as characters because the, the actors and actors have to age. They have to change the cast every two years to age them. Why don't we just go all the way and just get them on the set? <laughs> <laughs> the awesome. Can you imagine? Oh, well, that'd be amazing. But you grew up in London. Now you live in Minneapolis. I do. Yeah. How so? What what brought you across <laughs> the pond, so to speak? So what was I thinking? Yeah. Um, we moved about 15, 16 years ago, my husband and I, and actually it was part of a team of us. There were four couples. And um, the church I was part of and I worked for it, which was actually not in London by this point, it was about two and a half hours north in a city called Sheffield, did like a church swap with a church in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, our church had a lot of young adults and um, they were wanting to transition from a more attractional model to a more um, incarnational model. Um, of doing church so they said would you come over and we just got married and thought well that's an adventure um at that point we assumed we spoke the same language and everything so we're like same <laughs> language same language. <laughs> we had no idea what easy, we were doing. easy uh, but no find, finding the tube in phoenix was a challenge that's my guess I'm telling you so many things. Phoenix is wonderfully glorious with the kind of big unfurled hot like sky and everything, but it is in the summer, like walking around in an oven slowly. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, uh, by many measures, hot. quite different from England. Y uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I feel like America is seven countries really. I think now that I've traveled it and been here a while, I don't, I feel like America in my mind, I have to think of America as seven countries when I'm going to places. And you've landed in Minneapolis. Yes. Which, which would be a different country than Phoenix. Yes, it is. And and uh, I remember we were very, when we left Phoenix, we were warned by, and they said, you know, they're very conservative there, <laughs> which I don't know which <laughs> Minneapolis they were thinking of. Um, I don't know whether they just equated cold with conservatism in particular way. It's a very different world. Yes. And yes. Um, very, and uh, to be honest, I think we were drawn to it because it felt a little bit more European. Yes, it in is. In many ways. Oh, some strong and, Northern European roots in uh, Minnesota, of course. Yeah, there's some some real, real Scandinavian vibes happening in certain yeah, parts, um, which is lovely, um, as well as um, Hmong community, a Somali community, um, as well. So yeah, it's 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 been good. It's been a it's been a trip. I learned how to buy expensive clothing that keeps me alive and warm, <laughs> <laughs> which you you didn't imagine that would be necessary until you landed there. I, I get that. No. I didn't know I could buy such an ugly coat for so much money. I think that's what I, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize. Well, you know, I, I grew up in Seattle, which also, Seattle and Minneapolis are seen as kind of the Nordic enclaves historically yeah. in American urban life and many similarities. And uh, in the neighborhood in which I grew up, everyone was a Scandinavian Lutheran. I mean, honestly, ah. my friends were named Leif and Thor and Eric. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody went to... First Lutheran or Ballard Lutheran yeah. or Gethsemane Lutheran, and actually they were subdivided by by their country of origin. In those days, I'm so old. In those days, as a kid, like the Swedish Lutherans were at this Lutheran church, and and Finney Ridge Lutheran, those were the Danes, and the the Norwegians were at First Lutheran. All that. I was the outlier because I wasn't Lutheran, and 
it was okay because I, I actually looked a lot like those people, but I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't have that same frame. I learned how to eat lutefisk and, you know. Oh, wow. Well, not, I didn't learn how to like it, but I did learn how to eat it. <laughs> so what I'm just saying is, I, I'm segueing to, I know something about landing in a place like you've just described, but then I have to think about Joe's journey because here you are a Londoner, but your folks came from Nigeria. Yeah. And, and so you have, you actually have some very immediate African roots. Oh, yes. And, and, and you have this UK experience, and now you're in the States. Oh, but wait, Joe is also uh, a woman of black complexion. Oh, and wait, she's a woman. I mean, there, there's a, a word that flies around intersectionality these days mm. uh, that often is used as a political cudgel. You know, people oppose it or they embrace it or whatever. But it seems, yeah. uh, if, if you don't mind me asking, how do you understand intersectionality, which basically for me sounds like there are all these different uh, frames of reference mm -hmm. and, and you have to navigate several different frames to find your way and to give yeah. your voice a hearing. Is that your journey? You know, I think when I first, I think I watched, um, I think it might have been a, a TED talk that Kimberly Crenshaw did about intersectionality. And I remember as I listened to her describe intersectionality and, and the visual images of, of people meeting at an intersection and being impacted, I felt like my life was being read to me. Because you I identified with the description. Oh, oh my gosh, it was I'm like, finally, someone is giving language to why I was like, yeah, like I'd be in conversations about feminism and I'd be like, yeah, but it's not just that. Or, or conversations about, um, my, about my ethnicity and I'm like, yeah, but there's something else as well. Or particularly in the UK, conversations about class, which is way, I'm not saying it's not true here, but it's way more pronounced there. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like, <laughs> you mean you didn't, you just, and, and recognizing that the intersection had this compounding impact. Um, so I found, I mean, I, I, I know that others do not find the word helpful, but good for them because it's great. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I, it, it's real. My observation is people who do not experience intersectionality in multiple forms don't think it's helpful. <laughs> but for people yeah. who have multiple intersections, uh, it, it does seem to resonate, and that's why I'm so interested in your observations about it. So help us understand a little bit, growing up, wh where would you yeah. find a moment where you suddenly realized, oh, this is an intersection of several different identities that's yeah. giving me a challenge? Yeah, I, I can tell you the first moment. I think my first understood moment with intersectionality was when I was given the talk by my Auntie Bassie when I was seven years old. And it was 1981, so, and about three or four miles away from where we lived, actually two or three miles from where we lived, um, it was an area called Brixton, which had a, an eruption as a result of, and, and I say this not as opinion now, but as historians look back and the independent investigations, a lot in terms of poverty, police, police brutality, systemic inequalities, um, and so that, which resulted in protests and eventually riots. And we'd see, um, we see the things on the news. I mean, there may be three or four channels at the time, so it was on every every channel. And I and throughout that year, there were a number of um, there's a lot of unrest in different parts of the country. And I remember my aunt sitting me down one night, saying, "Joe, there's something you need to understand." She said, "There, are, you have two marks against you. You are black, and because you're and you're a woman." So she said, "You can't get away with what your friends get away with. It's not the same for you." Because said, because they may not be black and or women. Yeah. Yep. And she said, it's not the same. It's not the same for your friends. 
um, as it is for you. Um, so it's, and she said, it won't be enough to just be good. You will have to be at least twice as good as the people or as your white friends um, and your white male friends. And she said, um, she said, so you'll need to be twice as good. And, she, and I remember this bit particularly where she said, at least, at least, so that even if they do not like you because you're black, and even if they do not respect you because you're a woman, they will still employ you because you are clearly far and above the best for the, uh, best, the best for the job. And she said, it's just on, not easy. On the merits, you surpass everyone else. Yeah, and she, and she, but she said, you have to get really far ahead to make sure that yes. it's just a done deal. You have to overcome and, a fence that already exists that doesn't exist for others. Yeah, and the, I think the weirdest thing about it, Jim, is when she talked about it, is that she didn't even sound bitter. It was like medicinal. Yeah. It was just like, here's how it is. It was a very relaxed conversation. It wasn't, there was no angst. There was no, it was a resigned, this is the way we will, uh, and my, and she was talking in the context of school and getting jobs and stuff. And this is one of many conversations we're going to have over the years about what it looks like to live. I mean, in, in the UK, my family, my aunts and my mom and that had lived in the UK for 20 years by that point. Um, they weren't new. Right. So um, she, she, she'd seen how things roll. Oh, and they'd experienced it. And, you know, they, a, number, a number of my aunts and, um, and my mum are nurses. And so they'd be in hospitals and they would be the heads of wards and people wouldn't want to touch, wouldn't want to be touched by them and things. And, and my mum's like, I'm about to save your life. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm about to save your life. Um, but you don't want me to save your life because you want X or Y or, you know what I mean? And, yes. and things like that. Um, so it was a passing down of advice of not just your skin, not just your gender, but the intersection of both puts you in a distinct position. We have a guy, and I'm sorry, my apologies, Joe, I didn't introduce him to you. His name is Ryan Woolsey. He's a, uh, one of our tech staff on, on, on this uh, interview, and he pulled up a, uh, a diagram of intersectionality that has a person in the middle, a stick figure, and there are these different things of ethnicity and gender, age, ability, sexuality, mm -hmm. education, race, class, language, culture. I mean, all of those can be intersections. Yes. And, and I'm just... I'm listening to your story and realizing that makes so much sense. Again, people who don't experience so many intersections may not appreciate how real this is. Yeah, understand. And, and the cost it is for people, the cost. I, I'm mindful of um, people who are raising children with special needs or with a wheelchair and wheelchair, even basic wheelchair access to places or environments if we haven't even thought about or what does it mean? For, I, I worked and um, before I um, worked for a church full time, I worked for my local college um, with hearing impaired students and I was there. And it was before everybody was working with laptops and everything. So I was their note taker, but I was also their advocate. And I would watch teachers be very dismissive. And I would have to be the person who say, okay, you have a, an obligation to this student who is in your class. It is your job to ensure that they have the resources. I know it's inconvenient for you. I know you, I know every they are, it's one, it's one young mm -hmm. adult in the space of this room, but I would find myself having to go to bat for these students again and again, because their their needs, their distinct needs were blithely overlooked. Blood, and not even aggressively, blithely yes, unconsidered. Just kind of like um, a, a default, not necessarily yeah, yeah. an intention, just it was a default. And a lot of intersectionality, the challenges it brings are probably default reactions uh, that people don't have. And, and what would you say, I mean, to, to both sides of the coin, to someone else who might be, who might just be hearing this today and thinking, whoa, 
that's kind of my my world too. I have these different identifiers which make me set to the side or I have to, it seems like I, I have to do more just to be yeah. normal. Uh, what yeah. would you say to someone like that? I mean, is, do you feel like you need to give them the, the Aunt Bessie talk or, or what? Um, my <laughs> I would probably, I think I would probably just say, how's it been? I think because I, I think it's important for them to give voice to their experience, to give voice to how it's felt give voice to what it's cost because I think I mean my aunt was talking about education and stuff I think I I applied it to every part of my life and that came at a cost mm -hmm. it definitely came at a cost um I would probably ask some of them have you had a day off recently but that's a question I ask everybody anyway <laughs> just as a as a hello <laughs> yes yes <laughs> just as a general introductory it's a question. safe question it, it is it's a good one and sadly it often has quite a predictable answer um but, but but I think I would want to say what's your story what's your journey because it's often for those who have lived that it's often not been heard yes. and it's not been listened to so I think that's the primary thing and I would say I I would say to some, I would say, I see you. And some, I would say, I want to see you because I don't want to assume that my experience is exactly theirs. Well, and maybe that's a good answer for someone who may not be experiencing intersectional yeah. challenges. Mm -hmm. It's just for all of us to hear other people's stories. It seems so elementary, but honestly, yeah. when you hear someone's story, there there becomes a kind of common humanity. There's, there's yeah. a connection. You know, you and I were talking just before we went on air today about, I made some offhand remark about having orange juice and you asked, do, are you serious? You want orange juice? And then I explained, well, I really like orange juice with extra pulp, which you're also a fan of. I mean, suddenly across you, the miles, across our different intersectionalities, there we are. Yeah. And, and, and another, another big bonus was that Joe, was familiar with Fairlife chocolate milk, which is one of my faves. See, I, I live in a world where not everyone knows about that. So the fact that you know tells me that you are supremely uh, <laughs> cosmopolitan and urbane. <laughs> so yes. it's all good. Yes, I am. That's what we'll go with. <laughs> <laughs> but so tell us a little bit more about your story. So uh, your folks came from Nigeria. Why did they move to London? What would that be about? Um, it was in the, in the 60s, it, um, a number of reasons really, work, opportunity, um, after the, there was a labor shortage in the UK and there was a kind of open door to the, what was known as the Commonwealth, which is mm -hmm, basically yes. countries previously colonized um, <laughs> and to, for, for work. And so many, many, there's a large Nigerian population in, in the UK, in London, um, large um, population from the Caribbean. So Jamaican, Barbadian, um, Barbadian, um, just a whole... Um, well, like the empire once was, in the yeah. sense of the very diverse populations congregated now together in the UK. Yeah, um, from India, from Bangladesh, from Pakistan. And so it was quite, it, I mean, again, because of growing up in London, I grew, I grew up with a range of communities um, living around us. And so that was their first, that was the reason. It was, it was a new adventure. They were in, my parents were in their early 20s, um, like, a, like a number of... Um, my family members, they moved in their twenties and kind of established their, their space. And some people went back. Yes. Um, some people weren't prepared for the lack of welcome that they would receive and others built their lives and careers there. But if your parents came from Nigeria, that suggests to me, you might have grandparents in Nigeria or extended family there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do you have yeah my grandparents have passed now, but um, yes, I, I do have cousins, aunts and uncles still in Nigeria. Have you been to Nigeria? I have. I went when I was 25. It was phenomenal. 
So it was phenomenal. Yeah. So again, I'm I'm driving down a train of questions yeah. out of, because it's all, it's really all about me. It's not really <laughs> just I've identified. <laughs> I've identified. Yeah. Okay, so I'm an Irish citizen by birth. I have a whole my own story, but I, I grew up in the states, and that's all good. As an adult man, I went back to Ireland, and it just there was something about it. I don't know how to describe. Even though I'd never been there, it just just being there filled in some things for me. Yeah. And I'm hearing you kind of express that same thing. Absolutely. You'd heard about it, you knew it existed, mm. uh, but when you landed there, tell me one thing that you just took away and thought like, wow, I'm so glad I have this piece. Um, it was like having a part of my identity restored that I didn't know was missing. Um, and I think, I mean, I grew up eating Nigerian food. I grew up in a Nigerian community in London, but I think to walk the streets and see myself all around and to see hear the cadence of my voice here i don't speak the the language our fan well i don't speak yoruba which is the la language that our specific tribe speak i do dream in yoruba from time to time mm. uh, which is surreal but happens and i understand it more than i let on to people just so that i know when people are being abusive <laughs> or whatever i just like let's just pretend you, i don't know um but it was wonderful to see myself and to see Nigerians who were wealthy and to see Nigerians who were poor and see, see families and see, see communities uh, was, was incredibly special because um, once I, particularly once I left London, I was often in white majority spaces and have spent most of my life in white majority spaces where I, where you had varying degrees of curiosity about your hair, about your skin, about how you, about what you do. There was no curiosity there. Yes. Yes. You, you kind of blended in. Exactly. For the first time in my life, I blended in. Yeah. I blended in and I, and I was the norm. And the, and when I, when we went over, we, I went as, actually with some friends of my church as a mission trip and then went and saw family while I was there. Yes. And it was just so, it was like breathing out. Um, and, and the ease at which, um, the I, in fact, I think I probably didn't realize how Nigerian I was until I went to Nigeria. Yeah. Extraordinary, isn't it, actually? Yeah. How much we carry that yeah. is somehow mysteriously interwoven in us. Yeah. Uh, even though it may not be our experience of formation, still we're being yeah. formed by that uh, those generations behind. Uh, totally. It never leaves. And, and so, I mean, you have so many fascinating what shall we say, uh, dimensions? Well, I mean, you know, we, oh, I mean, here, I, mean so I like dimensions. There's so many dimensions uh, to Joe Saxon. I mean, you, you have African his history and passion. You have the UK. I mean, Absolutely. just and and now in the states, long enough <laughs> to, I mean, to understand the seven countries, and and then you you have a voice as a woman and a woman of color. And I mean, there's so many ways in which you're a standout, I would say, uh, in part because you, you seem to have identified the power and the necessity of elevating voice and in your context, women's voices. Mm -hmm. And help me understand that. You have written a book called uh, Ready to Rise. It came out last year, fascinating. You, you have several books. Uh, Ryan, pull up, pull up this, this library. <laughs> Of oh, Joe no. Sasso books, come on! I know you've no, got Ryan. it. Honestly, <laughs> so I mean, uh, more than enchanting, and uh, the dream of you, and so on, and and then this ready to rise, and this book especially seems to me to speak into the. When I don't say not only just the capacity of women to lead and influence, yeah. but the necessity. I mean, those are different things. This isn't like, yeah. well, this is an option. Here's an elective, could be cool. 
Uh, no. <laughs> in, in order for our world to be whole, for our societies to be whole, for our politics, everything to be whole, there must be. This seems to me, I, I'm maybe leading the witness, it seems to me your, your position, there must be women's voices speaking as peers into all the conversations. Have I got Absolutely. that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, I think you summarized it wonderfully, actually. I, that would have been a very short book. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> let me just say, if anyone listening, if you'll just buy a, a Saxon book, you're going to be able to just summarize big ideas because it's all there. Yeah, I think it was, it's something that has been a growing awareness for me. And, and I think, um, probably when I was in this, that, that more so in the States than when I was in the, in the UK. Um, uh, yeah, more so in the, in the US, I think as, as I landed, as we landed here and I had my children here, I have two daughters and have, was in Arizona and I, and I worked in, I worked for, I've worked as a campus pastor, church planner, and then and there was a long period when I was working with an organization that worked with churches doing discipleship mission. And we'd gather these learning communities and I'd be one of the communicators and one of the, and a lot of the stories we told were out of our experience of the church in the UK. And I, I was so often the only woman in the room. I mean, agonizingly often, the only woman in the room. And and it was an ec ecumenical work. So there'd be churches of different denominations there and all that kind of stuff. But again, I'm like, how are we going to do this, friends? Because it's great that you're having all these processes and all these teams together and, and that. But the implementers of this work aren't here. Or, or do you know what I mean? Or, or there's only, or one is here. or to, And not the only implementer, but I just thought, oh, this is going to be interesting to, to watch. Well, and why do you think, though, I mean... Obviously, men and women mm -hmm. experience life differently and in some yes. important ways. Uh, I always I joke sometimes with my wife. I've been married forty two years, so so she and I have kind of we kind of figured each other out, but still in the discovery zone. Let me promise. But I mean, she's all about childbirth, honestly. I mean, she's loved it, and we had four sons, and 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 then she after we decided that our family was set, she decided to become what was called a doula. She worked in a hospital oh. helping. Uh, provide prenatal and then delivery and postnatal care. Amazing. Uh, but anyway, she she would describe all that to me, and she'd be so buzzed about it. And I'm thinking, you know, it's it's kind of like a mess. I, childbirth is like, seriously, <laughs> you want to do this? You're, you're choosing. My point is, it, it just often we laugh at my house because it dramatizes the lens and the experience and just how both of us are necessary to make a whole. Now, yeah. I'm I'm asking you, Joe help us understand why outside of my house yeah. in a social way, why is that so necessary? What do women bring to the table that, that guys can't get or vice versa? I mean, I think some of that, some of the differences I think are determined by culture as well. But I just think the, tr the reality is, is when I look at the Bible and, and when I look at history and everything, women are made in the image of God. Why would you not want them? <laughs> Part of me is almost like, yeah, we can talk about how women function relationally and all of that kind of stuff, but they're made in the image of God with gifts and potential and talents and, um, and they experience the world differently. And if you want to change the world, you need that whole world at that table. You need it. And, and breadth is, is far more likely to be healthier. Um, and, and, and there is insight. And like, if you are wanting to serve a, a community and you want to take a message to a community or build a business in that community, you've got to know how that community functions. You will not know that if only men are there. You just won't. 
and and um you because how can you well I, I, and and i think it's probably because i've often grown up in difference do you know I mean, I I often say my most common identity is immigrant. I have always been on the outside, and I don't mean it in a kind of oh, I've always. I mean that has happened, but I've I've always been on the outside looking in, or the outside interpreting different experiences and saying, well, that's true for you, but there's a whole host of people here, or that's true in this way, but there's a whole we, and yet sometimes we can assume that there's one story. You, you've one been story. you've been positioned. It's really interesting. You've been positioned as an immigrant to be an observer. Mm, I think I mean, so. Because you, you've, been, you've been able to observe without some of the assumptions of, of the population you're seeing, even yeah. as you are speaking into their lives and journey, but you can, you know, anyone who comes to a new place or, or comes as an immigrant to whatever the context is, is able yeah. to observe what people who actually live there don't see. Don't, yeah, exactly. And, and, and you, you referenced in the discipleship groups, you know, there were mostly men there. And, and, and one of the things you said was, but that's not really probably healthy altogether because a lot of the people who are going to do this work are not represented in the circle. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I, and so I think some of it is a very, I'm, um, very pragmatic. I mean, I have theological reasons as well, but very pragmatically, if you want to serve a community, know the community. <laughs> and, <laughs> And there are stories um, that need to be told and need to be heard and experienced. And, and it's not a, it's, that's not an insult to the story that's being heard. It's just a single story. It's not the full story. It's not as rich a story as it could be. Um, and so I think, my, and as I, as I went, to, as I spoke at events and speak at these conferences where I often was the only woman speaker or the only black person or, the, or whatever, um, I'd often... <clears throat> excuse me, I'd often meet women leaders or their spouses who would say, how? They'd just say, how did you get there? How did you do this? What do you advise? And it, there was this, just this, and sometimes, honestly, do you mind meet people, meet women in bathrooms in tears, in tears, because it was the first time they'd seen somebody who looked like them or who told a story that represented their world or um, was a woman too, or or something. Because And I, because they were, not because they didn't enjoy what else, but they didn't see themselves. And if you don't see yourself represented, it does make you question things. It's a fascinating. Question what's possible, what, who you are, what you do. Tell me about your theology. You said, you know, you're just explaining a kind of a practical yeah. functional outcome, but oh yeah, I've got a theology about this too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, no, it's good. I mean, what? Because there are people who would theologically say, okay, that makes sense at a social dynamic, but oh, my theology does not permit that. What would you say? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I have long decided, I, I long ago decided that people are entitled to their thought and stuff. Um, so, I, uh, so I'm not necessarily trying to persuade them, but where I come from, the position I stand in is, first of all, we're made in the image of God um, and with the talents, the potential, all of these things, all of the things, um, that's a very rapid summary. <laughs> I mean, there's a deep that. dive there. Yeah. But that's a, a little deep dive. But I think I think we start to go off even at the very beginning where we where in Genesis 2 we talk about um where in Genesis 2:18 it's like I'll, I'll make a, a helper suitable for him and I think we we project our version of helper. Our version of helper is an assistant, our version of helper is backup plan, our version of helper is someone who plugs in all of the gaps. A subordinate. And, and, and yeah, and honestly, subordinate, because we see suitable as fitting and centering the, the mm -hmm. other person. 
But actually the word in the Hebrew is Eza or Eza, depending on how you choose to pronounce ancient Hebrew today. Um, and, um, and it is a fascinating word, which means, which, and, and when there's an obscure word or a word, a word in the Hebrew I liked, you, you, you translate it in how else you see it show up in the Bible. And it's a word which mean, which is a combination of words meaning to be strong, to rescue and to save, which already begins to put a crack in the subordinate view. Um, a verb as well as a noun meaning to protect, surround, defend and cherish. When we see, um, most of the time we see the word, um, I mean, it, the Hebrew is a, a, such a dynamic language, so it has a root and it extends in other ways. But the other times you see that word, um, 21 times you see it. Of, the, of those 21 times, I think 16 is God delivering his people from his enemies. It's often used in conjunction with strength and power. Deliverance. Um, deliverance yeah and um so you know we talk, talk about god but um god is your refuge and your strength never present help and ever present azer in times of trouble um and we don't see god as subordinate unless we're choosing to do our own you know what I mean? <laughs> yes right we don't, and again when we're made in his image i think for me i found it a very liberating i even understanding that word was a very liberating thing because if you're made in god's image if you look like your dad um, what does that say about you and that's before we even get into who does what and all, all of that kind of stuff i think there is there, there so often has been a, and I don't know why this is the case, a picture of the fragility and the frailty of women. I think too much Shakespeare, in my opinion, um, <laughs> on a, um, the frailty of women. And as your wife will tell you, in those delivery rooms, frailty is not, yeah. not required. You don't get through 35 years of periods and delivering kids or living with infertility and adopting or yes, fostering. Yes by being fragile. Do you know? That's <laughs> you right, know right, I mean? no, you're exactly right. Um, I'm, the, you know, I'm the weak link in the chain when it comes to giving those kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, I, and what you see, what, when I look at that part of the Bible, you see this wonderful, before anything's wrong with the world, God calls her an Aza, and this strength, power, rescue, save, and suitable, also meaning corresponding to. Mm -hmm. um, one of my, um, I've seen another theologian describe it as standing boldly opposite. Um, equal to. And, and so you see this partnership, which is dynamic, both given this commission to rule and reign. And then, and then everything goes wrong with the world and everything goes whack. And I'm like, why are we trying to live into the whack rather than the redeemed version? Mm. Um, and, and I'm not saying there aren't obscure passages, and all, but I think we've come to translate the clear things. Deborah is clear. Miriam is clear. Priscilla is clear. Um, Phoebe is clear and we take the obscure things and hone in on those. Yes. And we often don't do the language work on that, which at least represents more than one view. Um, and so we see Deborah, who is a military leader who and a spiritual leader and a prophetic voice, a woman, I call her a woman without apology, <laughs> who just gets on with it in the trenches yes. as well as, and I, and what I love when you see these women in the Bible, there's not like this archetype either. They are, there are women who, who live out their kingdom calling in as they raise their family. There are others who you don't know whether are married or single. There are others who are women who are married and you see them as more prominent, uh, like a Priscilla or culturally prominent, prominent mm -hmm. like a Priscilla or a Deborah than their spouses. Um, and um, I was really struck by, uh, I think it was Scott McKnight talked about women. He said, he said, you know, when we talk about women in ministry, I, he goes, I wonder if we could say women ministering. He said, let's look at the women in the Bible. Could Holder, for example, who was an advisor to David and Kings, 
Could Hulda do what she did in your church? Could Deborah, could Miriam be herself? Let's start there. Can these women who are in the Bible, validated, encouraged, celebrated in the Bible, Philip's prophetic daughters, could that, because they are clearly biblical, could mm-hmm. they be those biblical women? Yeah. In, in would your that church? story be written today in your local church? If you want to be the Acts of the Apostles, how do you write that one? Yeah. Exactly. Would they be part of the story? And, um, and you know, there and there are women who are like, you know, honestly, my theological my theological framework is that my my scope of service is women, and it's like rock on. My thing is train them all, <laughs> train <laughs> tra- train them, invest, equip them, because even though the spaces that don't necessarily believe in women leading are under resourcing the women for what they what they believe they're called to, and those who say they believe that women can do all the things are under resourcing. Um, and are like if you give lip service to it, but you don't do it actually, it leaves a lot of people frustrated and exhausted and confused. Don't confuse them. Be clear. Mm-hmm. I have a uh, a long history in India, and have uh, I first went there in 1987, and have been many times, and have a long uh, relationship with uh, work in India. Anyway, mm-hmm. one of the the what I'll call a gospel missions in India. Uh, you know, India is a very uh, difficult place these days, given the political environment. But I work with a group that has been committed to transforming and elevating life in villages. And yeah. and about three quarters of the Indian population still lives in villages, not in the big urban cores that we often yeah. see on the news. And so this particular uh, initiative is to help transform that village life. And it's a patriarchal society. And, you know, it kind of rolled for many years within that context. But uh, a very strong woman uh, named Pratiba that I know well, you know, stood up one day and said, wait, these villages are never going to be really changed unless the women are empowered yeah. to lead the change. And mm-hmm. and yeah. that that went down within the gospel context of, of the community there. I'm not sure the ex- external audience in India was buying into, but that's what happened. And over the last 15 to 20 years, what we've seen, and I can tell you, 100,000 villages, uh, I'm not just throwing out a number, we have addresses for those, 100,000 villages have been transformed, and in no small measure because of the women's empowerment yeah. movement, and micro loans and banks, and, and yeah. the women, what was interesting, the women naturally, and this is cultural, but it's also, I think, gender-based, the women naturally gather together in cooperatives to yeah. maximize the impact of the microloan to provide yeah. an economic step up in the village in a way that men tend to be more, uh, you know, on their own. But but the consequence of that of that women's empowerment thing is is truly transformational. And I'm hearing yeah. you discuss. Uh, I'm hearing you advocate for this reality. And even in a culture that may not recognize women as as peers, everyone is being trained uh, in, yes. in these villages. Everyone is standing up, and of course, over time, their voice is being heard. In the world in which you walk, do you see that? You, you've written a book called Ready to Rise. It's, it's like, we're on the cusp. Uh, is, is it, yeah. Or as Melinda Gates, uh, you know, she's throwing a billion dollars at women's empowerment. She wrote a book, Moment yeah. of Lift. You know, is, yeah. Are we at a cusp? What do you see? Is, it, is this like a tipping point, or are we simply on a long, hard climb? How are you feeling? I think... I think both in church and society, we can't rest on our laurels. And I think it's a cause we have to take up every generation. I think we, every, every generation has to reckon with it and reckon with the realities. I do think there is progress, but I, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? That, um, again, 
you'll know this as being an avid crown watcher. Um, I grew up in a country where my childhood was marked by having a queen, yes, but but far more marked by having a female prime minister until I was a teenager. And so it's been fast and, and, and then has had another female prime minister since and are at the stage when you can critique their work without it being necessarily about their gender. Ah. Um, and... Um, and I, 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 I feel like there's well, and and England's not alone in that. All around the world, all around the world, there are countries who are not always seen as developed or whatever really unhelpful language um, has we've succumbed to, of women who have led in various spaces in across the board in society, and and so I do feel I feel we're on the cusp, but I think. I call. I think it's it's like a hinge. To be honest, I think it's a door with hinges that can swing either way. I, I really do. I think it can swing either way in our homes. I think it can swing either way in our communities. Um, and I think, but I, I think the consistent thing is the potential remains. Every generation has potential. I, it's just whether we want to realize it each time. We uh, here in this country, as you know, as everyone knows have crossed a threshold in that the Vice President of the United States mm-hmm. is a uh, both uh, an American woman who also has South Asian and uh, African roots. And I mean, it, it's a marker in the way that yeah. Margaret Thatcher was a marker yeah, uh, in the development of uh, British politics and so on. Uh, and it, it's been an interesting journey because in the Church of God, where I sit, uh, we, we had history with uh, Senator, now Vice President Harris, because she grew up as a child in one of our congregations in Oakland. Oh, wow. Now, uh, I also have history with uh, um, Mike Pence. I mean, both the Vice President and Kansas were interestingly uh, had a relationship to us at different levels, but from very different political uh, points yeah. of view. All right. Mm-hmm. Vice President Harris, uh, even though she has grown up in the Church of God, there are many people in the Church of God that would vigorously uh, reject some of her very upfront stated policies and approaches yeah. to social issues and so on. And, and my question to you is, given that reality, here we have a woman who's making history yeah. uh, and with voice, and she's a very articulate voice, yeah. uh, but because of her political views, there, you know, there, there's a lot of hesitancy in many quarters uh, of people in the country. I mean, that's true. If you're in politics, that's going to always be true. But I'm just wondering, how do we separate or how, how, how do we interact? How should we, in your view, interact with people who have different political views, but still maybe pioneers? Or what would you say to a, a, a public that may say, well, we're Jesus people, but we're just not buying into what Vice President Harris alters, offers, even though she herself would say she uh, is, is somebody, who, a woman of deep faith. How would you navigate that? I mean, this, this, I find this one a fascinating one because a part of me, there's a part of me which is just like, come on people, let's grow up on this. Um, and here's why: if we're really, really honest, if we really want to have that argument, uh, if we really want to have that debate, why? I, I guess my I would offer a number of questions. There are Jesus people, like when you look at the black majority churches, black specifically black majority churches, a vast majority historically and currently vote differently from you. Are they not Jesus people? And why is that? That's the question. I mean, that's the bigger that's, macro. Yeah. I mean. And I, so I offer that back to you. But before before we come with our assumptions on on that front, are, are they not Jesus people? Are they not your brothers and sisters anymore? And if they have managed to find a way to do that, 
is are you curious about that or have you already shut that down uh, do you have a monopoly on what it means to be a jesus person i know you're about the word are they not about the word i know you're about the spirit are they not about the spirit i know you're about uh, yep, yep. um and i think it uh, i mean so that's one part of it i think i guess part of me is almost like i uh, th- there's part of me which I feel like we have we sometimes forget how to be salt and light in these moments and also to have social skills mm-hmm. that we feel it's okay to insult people because they're different from us because they're politically different because they think differently from us and somehow their very existence is a threat to our faith when actually you, that's not how it works um so I so I'm cure I'm and also again I think this is a uniquely American problem do you know what I mean I I, 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 there is a reason why I don't get it, but then I'm from a country which doesn't have two political parties. Mm-hmm. And now there are two dominant ones, and particularly in this current era, but you don't have this binary thing. There were lots of people, people of faith all across the board. And so you have to get on. You just have to. You can't stay in your echo chambers. You just can't. And you have to be humble in your approach. Now, I'm not, does that, and, and you don't have to assume that because someone votes this way, they are boom, 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 or because you vote that way, they are. Mm-hmm. It, so and some of it confuses me, to be honest. Um, and some of it, I'm just like, I, I just think, I, I don't believe Jesus had a political membership. <laughs> I just, I, yes, I just right. don't see it. Uh, um, I don't see it scripturally or, or and, and I, and I think there is a question of, is there anything, can you, if we are again, wanting to change the world and, and we're assuming that that's by the gospel and not by our power, our earthly political power, is there anything, can you hear, are we willing to hear why people are celebrating this this landmark? Can you hear it? Can you appreciate it apart from your political public policy views? That's right. Is there anything positive you can find? Is there anything, um, and you can say, well, no, 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 we're going I get that. I'm still asking the question, though. And again, I'm going to ask you to go to your local black majority church where they may have a different may. I'm not because I'm not going to stereotype, but may have a different view from you. And have you asked them or do you not know them? Yes, or, or you don't know how to, to visit there either. I mean, that's uh, that's a possible. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I think there's yeah. I, and, and I and I say that and I know it's challenging, but I invite us to that as a journey. I invite us to that as a journey because surely um the gospel causes us not to be um i i'm not surely the gospel causes us to um to reach people not just positions <laughs> yes well and maybe, maybe it comes back to story yeah uh, I, I mean what's the I'm story each person has a story what's her story can you and I, and I think you know when you look at the people that jesus discipled they they didn't make sense on paper they they didn't make sense. You don't. How do you have a zealot and a tax collector? How do you have any of them in a tax collector? They were clearly they were more than foes. They were just. It was offensive to have them as a crowd together. And that Jesus models this way of being, where you have this group of people who are having to do life together, who aren't on the same page politically who have completely different ways of coming at the world and yet are casting out demons, healing the sick, bringing a message of life. You have the church in Antioch who are from different socioeconomic and ethnic groups in terms of their leadership. How come that 2000 years ago is radical for us today? Why is that, that the exception, not the rule? It, I mean, for the modern is, church. It's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a problem. You know, Joe, you you have obviously a rich grasp of Scripture. I mean, you have naturally introduced Scripture into this conversation at important key points. And as you've done so, I just want to ask you about your spiritual journey. 
So uh, Jesus is much in the center of, of the scriptural conversation. And, and tell me about that. How, how did you, what's your intersection with that Jesus guy? Is that something that you had from an early age or you discovered later in life? How was it? Um, both. Okay. <laughs> both, I would say. I, um, I gr- grew up in a family where, where th- there were lots of spiritual values, but not necessarily Christian values. Um, lots of religions, in fact, but not necessarily Christian values. And I came to faith through a Methodist church down the road that were doing kids' work. I do love children's pastors particularly. Always underappreciated, never paid enough in my opinion. But, <laughs> but uh, um, And they had this kids group that was and that was in the heart of our community that you met every week and they did bible studies and it wasn't kind of church light at all because a number of us were from very challenging backgrounds you know very challenging situations so jesus either was real or you were wasting your time i mean we, we there wasn't there wasn't much room for margin um on that there wasn't much margin for for wasting your time on that and i and all that although the church itself was in some ways it's almost like two churches in one building there was the adult church which had which was very different even theologically from the kids group and then there was this in this kind of relationship with jesus who was real and the bible was real and the spirit of god was real and you know you're nine so of course you believe it you haven't you haven't i mean you've been, you've lived long enough to be jaded and wounded you're just not long enough to be cynical about that particular thing mm-hmm. um and so i and so it was very much a me and Jesus journey. And then, then I think at my late teens, Jesus was like that friend who you grew up with, who was now embarrassing and just in, just invading all your stories and just kind of like, you're really in the way of my social life. And, um, but I remember, I, rem- I remember the moment I decided it. I, I said there was a dis- difference between the decision and the actual execution of this decision. But, the, <laughs> um, but the dis- I, I remember deciding to recommit my life to Christ when I was walking home from work. I was eighteen. It was a summer job, and I saw a sunset. And I think what it was is the sun had set on the apartment block where we. we and I guess the equivalent of what you, what I, co- what I'm describing is what it was like council housing. It was known for crime, known for all kinds of challenges. And I just thought humanity in all its wisdom has come up with something which has dehumanized us, dehumanized us and left us here to rot. And then I thought, God, I don't know how you did it. And I don't really care whether it was seven days, seven minutes, I don't care, but I know you made that. And I I think I said out loud, I think I've backed the wrong horse. (laughs) (laughs) Because you could see the contrast between what people had come up with and what he came up with. Totally. And, and, um, and so I think then has been this ongoing journey and, and I, and I am, um, it's weird because in throughout my life, I've been in different churches of different denominations because, you know, you just kind of go where there's life. And so I had, there was a, in my twenties, I worked at a church, which was an Anglican church and a Baptist church that had joined together, but was pretty charismatic in its theological expression. Um, uh, but I think I have just known him to be faithful since I was a kid and faithful does not mean my life has been easy or comfortable or or straightforward. I have just known him to be faithful. Um, and so for me, when I look at faith, I, when everything gets confusing, I come back to the Gospels and, and, and I'm like, OK, what does this look like in the life of Jesus? What did it mean to be in what does what does it mean to be part of God, a God? Um, God's story and the story he's writing. So I went to Bible college for a couple of years. And then at college, I studied biblical studies and did Greek and Hebrew because he'd so upended my life. I thought I need to thrash this out. Um, And if, because if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to play around. Um, 
I'm not here. And, and let me give a context. In England, you don't have the cultural Christianity. You, no, you don't, no one cares. Do you know what I mean? No one cares. <laughs> you don't need to show up on a Sunday for anybody. You don't need to do it for your parents. You don't need to do it for your grandparents. Nobody cares. Do you know what I mean? They're, yes. they're, England has its own religions, largely soccer. Do you know what I mean? That are, and pubs, which are glorious things. I love them both. But um, it, it's not like there was this cultural impulse yes. along. Yes. If you've decided to become a Christian, people already think you're a little bit of a weirdo and intellectually inferior in some way <laughs> or deficient in some way. Um, so, so I think um, I just couldn't, I couldn't write it off. You couldn't escape it and couldn't go halfway. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't escape. And that has presented me problems throughout my life that I couldn't escape it <laughs> and I couldn't go halfway. Um, but, but I've known him to be faithful. And, and, and because that became an anchoring uh, mm -hmm. principle in your life, and I, I don't mean to uh, make it cerebral, because that no, became no. an anchoring experience in your life, Jesus, mm -hmm. yeah. that has led you into your present space. Is yes. that, is that, I mean, you're following what you think he's asking you to do, how he made you and, and has positioned you providentially. Yeah. And, and you're speaking... Uh, especially to women and so on and calling them out. What, what do you, <clears throat> pardon me, what is in Ready to Rise, for instance, that you think mm -hmm. every woman should know? Yeah, um, no, thank you for asking. I think it is that he sees your identity. You're not too much. You are never not enough. You don't need to be quieter. You don't need to be louder. He, he wired you, you, and he has given you from the very beginning, given you gifts and abilities that need to be unwrapped because they make a contribution to the world that you were designed with a twofold purpose to know him, but also represent him in the world. Um, and, and that's not a gift, his, the gifts you have, and whether that is the way you have with numbers or the way you make a meal or the way you, or your hospitality or your strategic thinking and your budget planning, um, they are gifts to be unwrapped. They are not gifts just to be tolerated. They are work to be celebrated and invested in and maximized and optimized, not just for you, but because the world is a dumpster fire and, and, for, and he's making all things new and be part of it. But don't be passive participants because you don't have to be. So rising may look like courageous conversations in your household to say, you know what? We have never had difficult conversations and it's time. Rising might be, I had this thing that I said in Ready to Rise that, that, and it does keep me up at night and then I'm tired, so I fall asleep. But it's this thing of what isn't happening because women haven't been invested in, what businesses aren't being started, what churches aren't being planted, what courageous conversations aren't happening in your homes, what community initiatives aren't being started, all because there has been no one which has given voice to their calling. They've not been allowed to give voice to their calling. They've not been in environments that have cultivated their calling. They haven't had opportunity. And, and it feels like a tragedy, Jim, to be honest. It feels like a tragedy for humanity when then people who, um, who have been given gifts and abilities aren't given opportunity and environments to um, exercise them. I was at this event a while back and um, it was a preaching thing, a preaching masterclass. Um, and someone said, uh, uh, we were on a panel. Were, I, was, I was the only woman on the panel, but not because the other had to leave. Um, the other woman had to leave. So it was a time thing. And, some, and someone said, you know, what do I do with my, what if you have all these gifts and you don't have opportunity? And somebody said on the panel, your gifts will make room for you. And the guy started nodding. I said, can I just raise my hand and be really awkward for a second? Because I don't believe that's true. In theory, I think it's true. But when we look through history, I don't, I don't see that. I don't see that people who have been made in the image of God have had, have had room 
And that the gifts gave them room because if they were marginalized or dehumanized or written off, no one looked to see they had gifts. And so in theory, I want to say, yes, your gifts will make room, but only contingent on you having environment, access and opportunity and and the affirmation that this is a safe space to explore. And I think that's true. That's that's a story I've heard um, as I've talked with women um, and women um, of different ethnicities, of different life stages, of different ages, of different physical sizes, um, of different abilities for years for years. That, that's the same thing, whether it's in the bathroom, a woman crying at a coaching session, at a training session, it's been the same thing. There is something inside of me. There is something that I've apologized for, I've hidden or whatever, or I'm curious, maybe there's something inside of me, but how? And how to get it out. How to get it out. What now? What's the next step? So if that's a message for women reading that book, mm-hmm. What should a guy like me take away from your book? What's the message for men? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a it's a message for guys as well to ask themselves, are there gifts that you have left unwrapped that God wants you to attend to? But I would say if you are a man of influence and, um, and you have, uh, when you look at your teams um, and when you look at your, and I, and again, I recognize that you have different theological frameworks. Have at it. But what I, what, what I mean is when you look at your teams and whatever, wherever that theological framework lands, to be honest, um, what does it look like to invest in the women in that space? And can you use this as a resource to argue over, to throw apart, to tear apart so that you can have those conversations? Because I don't know many people who are having those honest conversations, but, um, because I think a lot is left to assumption. Well, if they wanted to do something, they know I'm up for it. They know I, I, I celebrate them. Surely they'd say something, but you're not the only voice that they've heard over the years. There are thousands of voices. Oh, I, I thought that they, you know, if they wanted to advocate for their pay, they would say something. No, they wouldn't. Um, uh, and and it's and I don't say that to shame a guy for thinking that. I'm just saying, let me be the person who raises the awkward question, so you guys can have the healthy conversation and move forward. Be intentional about yeah. the conversation because it will not oh, naturally absolutely. surface. No, it won't. And I think maybe some some leaders, when I think of some of the leaders who I know, they thought it would come up. They thought it would come up because they because they're good men. They're good good men. Safe men, encouraging men. Um men who are raising daughters, who are looking after mothers and grandmothers, they're good men. But um but some things are hard to say. Yes. And again, sometimes it's just dense men. Good men can be dense. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Well, I'm, am I self-projecting? Sorry. <laughs> but, you know, as we're talking about women and influence, then there's that word feminism. In the same way we have intersectionality yeah. as kind of a, a third rail in some conversations, a word like feminism can be. How would you define it? What would you explain feminism to be? Or would you say, I'm not a feminist? You know, I took a long, I took a while and probably because of the intersectionality thing, I, I took a while to understand myself as a feminist because I just thought when I would, when, this is me growing up, this is unique to Joe. This isn't a common, this, I'm not yes. saying it's everyone's experience, yes. so don't hear me say that now. But um, I would, when I was a kid, I would hear these women talking about how difficult it was for them. And I'm like, you and me's difficult is different, sis. Because you're saying that from your very wealthy neighborhood that you live in, and I'm not decrying it, but please don't say we're in the same boat. Because <laughs> I'm living in the inner city, and as a black woman, it's different for me. Um, and so it took me a long time to hear. Um, but I, for me, when I think of feminism, I just think of people, women being equal. 
I don't think it actually has to be this radical mm-hmm. about stuff. I don't think we have. And, and so for me, when I look at Jesus and how he treated women, and you know, you know what? If you don't like the label feminism, fine. Just do what Jesus did then. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> You'll find it's way more radical and it'll get you into way more trouble. Do you know what I mean? It's if, if you, I, I, I guess I don't feel I have to worry about that. I think there's, I think feminism's got a lot to teach us. And I think as leaders, and, and maybe this is probably, I'm, I'm not a laid back person. So it's not like I'm like, oh, it's all fine. It's just as a leader, my filter is, it's my job to know what the world is thinking, whether I approve of it or not. Where, I don't need to be defensive about it, but I need to know it because how do I serve in a culture I don't, I haven't even tried to understand? And understanding isn't the same as agreement, but how will I ever have empathy as a leader if I don't hear somebody's voice? And just because that voice is angry and just because that voice is uncomfortable doesn't mean it's wrong because after all, anger is a secondary emotion. It's pain or fear. So actually the question rather than why are you so angry is who hurt you or what are you afraid of? Do you know what I mean? As leaders and particularly for those of us who say faith is the center of our leadership, I think we can have enough emotional distance from this to be able to hear things that make us intensely uncomfortable, (laughs) that we might intensely disagree with for the work of the kingdom that we actually represent. And so, do you you know what I mean? I think that's that's the thing that stirs me on that. And so I'm not afraid of, I, I think you should read feminist literature. I do. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. These are women who pay for their books, even. Hear their stories. Hear their why. Hear their why. Don't impose your why. Don't, you, know that, you know that way that sometimes we can listen just to give our answer? <laughs> you know, oh, yes. like, and you just wait for the break in the conversation and say, oh, but, and do your whataboutism or something. Like, no, no, hear it. Feel uncomfortable with it. God is not insecure. Jesus ain't insecure. He knows who he is. So why do you have, why do we have to be, you know? Um, so I, I think, I think um, feminism has a lot to teach us. And honestly, and this is, if we were doing our job, perhaps it may not have been required. Yes. I mean, it stepped into a vacuum perhaps. Uh, because felt, we- needs, felt needs do stuff. Felt needs do stuff. And um, there, yeah. Are you afraid of anything? I'm afraid of lots of things. Um, I think, but but the <laughs> I'm afraid of lots of things. You know, I, I I do like being liked, Jim. I think it's a nice thing. You know, yes, and yes. Yeah. I am afraid of. There are things that make me nervous. I'm afraid of when I see faith co-opted. Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean, and obviously, I'm you know I'm not a great fan of any local white supremacists because that has implications for me and my children. Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm like, mm. um, Well, when you say faith co-optive, co-opted, unpack that. What do you mean? I think when we get religious and we assume that institutional power, when we replace spiritual power with institutional power or we see them as the same thing, it makes me nervous. Yes. I don't think history has shown, I think if we'd look at global history, we'd know that it's never worked and it never helps. Um, so I'm, I get, I'm concerned about that. I'm afraid of lots of things. I think what I'm, but what I'm most afraid of is being defined by my fear. <laughs> I mean, that's very fair. <laughs> that's probably the biggest fear of all being mastered by things. I, uh, I watched a, a, a YouTube video. I mean, isn't this is the terrifying part? Things I'm afraid of that people actually still can see and hear things I did years ago. 
<laughs> because I was a, I pastored for uh, 20 years. And so that said, uh, I watched you on YouTube from 2014. Oh, dear. Yeah. So many hairstyles, Jim. Oh, so no, many. No. I'm telling you, you haven't, so you haven't changed I a bit. It. You look younger than ever. But what I'm saying is uh, that the subject was what's next. I don't know if you'd even recall it or whatever. But what you were doing was you were you were you were speaking to the audience about how to prepare for what's next. How do we prepare for what's coming up next? And you unpack some lessons from Jesus' uh, temptation in the wilderness about surrendering. You told you you told a story. You just kind of made a an offhand remark about uh, you know when I was a child growing up, it was kind of a. a a difficult journey, and you mentioned some neglect or foster care, just some kind of twisters. Yeah. But, but that caused you to, um, you know, have to be resilient, and you, you had some responsibilities that maybe children otherwise your age wouldn't have had to bear. And you had to put together a little budget for food and so on. And you went to the donut shop, and and what I remember just jumped out was so good was that when God's you lived for the donut. Oh, I did. And then you felt like God was saying, "Could I be your donut?" <laughs> you know, but yeah. but now I'm I'm just seeding your memory because uh, yeah, no, thank you. I understand a lot of uh, a lot of us have things we've said and so on you may not all recall but what struck me about that particular presentation was your you were very savvy about how to prepare ourselves for what's next and we live in an age right now like what is next <laughs> what's the next shoe to drop we just can't we can't know so many things have happened even in recent months that nobody could have imagined what would yeah. you say to us about the future? Do you have ideas about where you think we're going? I, I've already asked you about the place of women and so on, and yeah. you feel like we're kind of on a teetering place. But on a broader scale, do you have anything you'd say about where we're going? And yes or no, and how do we prepare for a future? How do you steal yourself for what's next? Yeah, I mean, just as you speak, I think on three levels, I think three areas, um, I would say in terms of how do you prepare personally? is that I think it's important to see what this year has, who have you become in this crisis? Mm. Who have you become? Not just who are you becoming, but who have you become and or who do you want to become? Um, Cause I had ideas about who I wanted to become and I, I didn't, it didn't happen. But <laughs> <laughs> well, for, so for instance, come on, you open the door. So well, what I did you think and didn't? I, I like, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to do more reading, to do more exercise and eat really healthily. And I, and, and pray more. I did. I thought, Oh Lord, this is an opportunity for you and I. And I remember the first time I did, Jim, I sat down a Thursday evening and I felt that was a sacrifice because that was Grey's Anatomy night. So I sat down <laughs> and I prayed and I remember just sobbing. I just, I was like, <laughs> and I remember saying, God, do you mind if I get in the fetal position? Because I just thought I have no romantic pseudo spiritual way of navigating this earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to watch, I, it, it made me, I, I had to watch very early on, um, remind myself of what my vices were, remind myself, it's been a while, but I had to remind myself what my vices were because I was suddenly like, you know what, Joe, you need to think about your relationship with alcohol. I haven't had to think about that for 20 years, but I had to, I thought, mm, just be aware. And I had to tell somebody, this is what I need to be aware of in this, who I'm becoming, because I don't know how long this is going to last, although I think a while. Um, I feel the very fabric of how things are being, how how we functioned as church, as leaders, as families has been deconstructed. And so I need to know, I know I, know I do better when I'm emotionally and mentally well. And so I think the first area is, as you look to the future, I mean, I think this year is going to be bumpy. I don't, 
I, I don't think it, well, I think we all know that now. <laughs> We've already started out with a few bumps. Uh, and, and I'm hearing you say it may not be a smooth ride. It's not going to be a quick fix. No, there, I mean, no, there are no quick fixes. There are, there, are, there are no quick fixes. There are deconstructions and rumblings within church, within society, within technology. There are no quick fixes. So the very, first, the very one of the first things we can do is have our wits about us. And so you have to ask, who have you become in this? Have you become, are there particular, I don't know who it was and what, what preacher it was who talked about the darling sin, the kind of thing that you'd let yourself get away with, the kind of cat you'd stroke kind <laughs> yes, of thing. Yes, yes. Um, I think it's worth it's worth knowing that. Are you, you know, do you need to see a therapist? Do you need to increase the regularity of those appointments? Um, do you need to go on antidepressants? I, they are honest. And yes, I'm talking to you, leader of Church of Thousands, of course, because the adrenaline of no, the what happens after every Sunday, you got up and spoke in front of hundreds or thousands or 20 or whatever. And now that's gone. And that kind of feed, um, that kind of being that, I'm not, I'm not even saying it's a vain thing. I'm just saying the community aspect is gone. What, where does all that adrenaline go? Do you mean, where does all that, human that tangible connection go how are we how are we dealing with loneliness in this moment and so i think that's the first thing how i would say we prepare by having a long honest ongoing honest look on what this is who we've become spiritually mentally emotionally mm -hmm. and and attend to that i think relationally i think it's worth looking at our, our relationships all over again um and because I think for multiple reasons, I think I found I had far more time with my fam, which has been wonderful. And but it's made me make decisions about my future that I wouldn't have made without this last year. Mm. Um, I'm just like, OK, I'm going to come out of this different friends because I'm not going back. But there are also other I there. And maybe I scared people off earlier, but I don't know why. But uh, but I. I, ha I have friends across the political spectrum because that's a, that's a value of mine to do. I have across the theological, um, and, but that's always been a value of mine. That's because obviously I've, I've been Heinz 57 with denominations my entire life. Um, so that's an assumption. But I know one of the relational issues for many has been, oh, I thought we were all on the same page about politics, about race, oh. about, and, and, and there are chasms that have, have opened up. Some of us have lost people lost relationships we close friends who are like i don't know how i'm going to make my way back on this or i don't want to <laughs> or <laughs> i have you know I mean, not touching that again um that sort of thing and i think we may need to think through um i i think polarization is here to stay for a little while yet because i think when people are anxious you conserve do you know what I mean you kind of you know when you're anxious you you hold on to what makes you feel secure and what makes you feel familiar and all of that kind of stuff and I think for us as leaders we may have to actively work against that well no let me come back as human beings whatever we're doing we need to actively work against that because we we are part of a common humanity <laughs> you, yes. you know and so we, we will have to learn how to listen listen um, listen without, oh, it's a George Michael album, Listen Without Prejudice. Um, <laughs> George, George is another key value of my life. <sighs> I miss him. Anyway, um, and no, I didn't know him yeah. <laughs> at all. But, um, but I think there is a sense of that is going to be a skill we're going to have to actively develop because otherwise we're just going to be screeching over our chasms for years to come, years to come. And uh, that's going to be hard. Um, and 
I think um, as we look at the world around us, I think what's next is, you know, I, I already hear, um, you know, you, we already see organizations who are like, yeah, when we go back to work, we're not all going back in the office. So our fabric of doing life is shifting. The commute may be changing. Business travel may be changing. The way of doing travel is changing. I know Airbnb had this big hit and then they rose again, but with people traveling locally. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for how, I think it's important for us to watch people movement. Um, what are the values that have emerged? What does it mean for how we educate and how do we not just be remain completely siloed? And I think we might for a while and then the loneliness will, went out. I think it's important for us to get ahead of that. Um, I think this, uh, whenever there's a big shift in society, it's followed by this season of innovation and rebirth, isn't it? Um, it would be great for us as Christians if we were not those, well, no, no, again, I think it's true for us as Christians, but I think it's true for us as human beings. If we were think, if we dared to imagine, we need new, we, we will need solutions that are different to the ones that we had before nostalgia will be very tempting but we will need to be prophetic mm. human beings for what does it mean for the women for women in the workplace what does it mean for that many of the stats about women in the workplace are actually women of color in the workplace what inequities have yawned their way open and and i think if we can look at our play our communities our our, our neighborhoods our schools and um and pay attention I think it will. I think I do believe that we have the potential to respond. I do. Well, I'm hearing you say that, in your view, the destination is not going to be a return to the way things were in 2019. Uh, no. The destination is something as yet unchartered. And we're we all have, immigrants now, and we we're all immigrants in a way. Yes, we are. Uh, we're, we're, it's a new landscape. We're resident in a world that is not our home, so yeah. to speak. Absolutely, and that's tiring. It is. It's tiring, and it's exhausting, and it's vulnerable. But um, you can build a beautiful world as well. You, you mentioned about black women in the workforce, women of color. You know, mm -hmm. the COVID ep, uh, pandemic has seemed to disproportionately impact people of color uh, mm -hmm. and women especially. Yeah. Have you observed that? Have you seen it? Do you think that? I mean, I've seen it both here and in the UK um, in terms of the deaths, in terms of the professions that have been massively impacted, the service industries, hospitality industries, where... Um, I would like to say it wasn't true, but I know that's not the case. Um, it's it's hard to watch. It's hard to it's hard to reckon with when I think of like I, I was still talking to my family. My family are thrown all over the world. We're all over the place. Me and my siblings, even we span three continents just in the four of us. Um, but we and I said to us, I, I said to him, I goes, you know, I, it's miraculous that none of us have been touched by COVID. None of us. Um, but I know of many when I think of my black friends who have lost family members, it's many, like seven, 10, yes. 15. I mean, like, how do you even compute that level of grief? I, I, I don't know. The implication, what, when a, an entire generation gone. So sobering. It's, it's a, I think it's a sobering moment for, I think you're right. It's a sobering moment for, for a lot of this year, this, this last year, I keep on saying this year, even though it's 2021, just because it feels the same <laughs> in, in its dysfunction. Um, uh, this year was, there were many stories when there was the COVID story, but there was also the racial unrest story that, that broke open things that had been existed for generations. Now as an immigrant, there are certain tracks that I have, feel but there are parts of the african-american story that i don't know because i'm nigerian 
yes. um, that I'm learning and that I'm having to watch and think, oh my gosh, we can't ignore these things. That it's 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 it was always out, but now we're here. The volume's turned up. Mm-hmm. We will have to respond. We will have to respond. You had hoped, uh, as the pandemic began, uh, you have disclosed that you'd hope to make this the time of reading, but you didn't do that so much. No. All right. So, what's where does Joe want to read? If you if you were looking at a book or a title, what's on your on your shelf? What's in your head? Um, you know, there are. T- I'm gonna. S- I'll. I recommend one, and then I'll contradict myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, one book I'm reading that I've loved is by um, Rich Velotis. Rich, forgive me if I pronounced your name wrong, because you did tell me once, and I think I've got that wrong. <laughs> and he's a pastor in New York, and yes. his book is called The Deeply Formed Life. And it talks about individual spiritual disciplines, but also communal ones. And it is just like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this it's like it's the kind of book that if you start highlighting it, you've just got a yellow book and it's weird. So don't do it. You know, don't don't do it because then you've just graffitied all over your book. Um, and that's that that's just unhelpful. But that is a it's a brilliant, brilliant book. Um I but I'm actually uh, there, Ryan, thanks for bringing up the deeply formed life. Uh I yes. just I, we've got that up on the screen. He comes out of the uh, emotionally healthy church uh, yes. disciplines. Yes, yeah, it, and it, uh, just such a valuable, insightful story, and um, and in a community which is multi ethnic, and so is hearing the stories of multiple people, multiple experiences, all the time, which I think is just useful for yes, it, all of us. It um, brings depth. Yeah, it brings depth and and nuance. Yes. That, which is a something I have missed nuance, but anyway, that's another agenda I have. <laughs> Bring back nuance. Um, but, but I'd also say, don't just read books. Listen to podcasts. Um, and my reasoning is this: things are unfolding in real time. And if you've written a book, you'll know. Like Rich wrote that book ages ago. Um, you'll know that we wrote the books that are coming out now were written before this current landscape. Yes emerged or began to emerge because I don't think it's finished emerging and so I know many a writer who's like going back to their editor saying I just need to write a paragraph here I just need to add it I've got time can we just get in can we just tear this up and start again kind of thing um and so I would say listen to podcasts and uh, and read articles um again across the across the board because you will begin to hear what's current and the hints and re- read what's happening in business and what businesses are, what decisions they're making about everything. Um, what reading disciplines that are familiar to you and disciplines that are unfamiliar to you. Listen to podcasts about leadership and about culture, but just about life. Mm-hmm. Um, watch telly. Watch <laughs> telly. <laughs> 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 um, because I think they they will inform us for a while. Um, and I'm not saying that they'll tell us what's happening, but they, some of them things will just be snapshots. But snapshots are still important yes, along yes, the way. Well, speaking of podcasts, but before I go there, can I trust the BBC? Should I be watching that? Absolutely. Auntie um, Beeb is great. I, now, obviously, I mean, yeah, I, I, I personally <laughs> say yes. I, I, well, I'm a fan. I just wanted to, here's somebody who grew up with the BBC, but uh, there's, a certain, there's a certain reserve and uh, framing that uh, it brings to the news. That's very informative in a oh. larger palette, of course. But speaking of podcasts, I mean, the Joe Saxon has a podcast that you yes. uh, call Lead Stories with Steph O'Brien. Tell me about that. Yes. It basically began when Steph and I were ranting and someone said, you should 
I don't know whether they wanted us to leave the room or what they just wanted us to channel our energy. And they said, you should do a podcast around these things that you talk about all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we wanted to, you know, Steph is a pastor of a church. I have, as you know, have been a pastor and we were, and we, we have heard again, it was a similar thing. We've, there are great podcasts out there, but there wasn't anything at that time, which was two women who were pastors talking Mm -hmm. about, giving thought leadership or incarn- or telling their stories or drawing on on things so we deliberately wanted to be a content driven podcast we didn't do many we we have interviewed people and we have ebbs and flows on whether mm-hmm. we interview mm-hmm. people but we we were like no we want to just share things <laughs> and yes. share thoughts um, on leadership and life and you so, recently yeah. you recently did a series on the enneagram yeah. And, and disclosed that you're a number eight on the Enneagram. Yeah, but both also, of us are. Well, and, and then kind of explore the different dimensions uh, for people who are not familiar with the Enneagram. It's a kind of uh, personality assessment that you, you can dive in. It's a little different than some of the more, what I'll call rigid assessments. Mm-hmm. There are nine types, and uh, you got into that. You felt like it was really valuable. Help us understand. Why would you recommend the Enneagram? Um, I think I... Re- I mean, I, I, one, I do like those whole personality things. I'm just imagining all my Enneagram friends saying, don't call it a personality thing. Oh, like, they all, you know what I mean? The Myers-Briggs type say, it's not just this. I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. But I'm, you know. But in the end, it's, it's about help helping us discover yeah. ourselves. Yeah. I think, and it also helps us discover, it helps us discover more about ourselves, but also other people, because these things are done in the, I think there are ways in which it can be unhelpful. If you've, if you've always been used to being put in a box, then this might not be your day to look at this thing. But if you're wanting to understand the world in which you live, the people you work with, the teams, at least it gives you a reference point, something to work with. What I like about the Enneagram is that it talks about the motivations and the drivers for people as well. Um, and so, I, I mean, I like things that help me, it help inform my understanding. We know it's not the whole thing, but yes. if it gives me some something to work with, something to explore, um, it gives me a way of um, helping people understand where I'm coming from, particularly in times like this, where we often decide that before someone, do you know what I mean? But, oh, because sure, sure. everything's so heightened, then maybe these tools can help us it's find a, our way back. It's a reflective instrument. Mm-hmm. And in a time when you might be confined to your home, might be a good time to do some reflection. Uh, yeah. uh, Ryan's just brought up a, a chart about the Enneagram. It shows all the different numbers and the way in which they connect. Because it's a complex weave. There's a surface level and you get down into it. I just want to yeah. say, some people look at that chart and they go, oh, wait a minute, this is a cult... A pentagram or something because it has a lot of angles in it, but it's it's not that. Uh, it has deep spiritual roots and uh, has been yeah. widely embraced uh, in many Christian communities. Uh, I just thought, found it interesting that uh, as you were describing your podcast, it does dive into content, and yeah. uh, it's illustrated sometimes through interview. But you're you're talking to uh, your partner Steph O'Brien, who is also a pastor, and about real life, and it's yeah. it's very engaging. And I want to commend uh, the oh, listeners. You. you know, you, Thanks, you're you're, so kind. you know what you're going to do something over there. So you, you get that rise, ready to rise book, and you get that podcast going. I mean, your life is going to be whole. Oh, get some Fairlife chocolate milk <laughs> and some orange juice with extra pulp. I mean, you're good. <laughs> you're good. That's really funny. That's really funny. Oh, so, gosh. Joe, uh, our podcast here uh, is framed by a, a little phrase called All That to Say, because mm-hmm. we, we're trying to expand in long-form conversation, which you and I have been uh, right now engaged in, because our, our premise is that that 
Jesus excelled at the humanity of a long-form conversation, from the road to Emmaus where he walks yeah. for some time, yeah. listening to the disciples before he actually gives his feedback, uh, yeah. to meeting the woman at the well. I mean, there's so much about the ministry of Jesus which is actually takes time. Yeah. And, and we live in a world of sound bites and you know, yeah. cut and snip, and we got to get that this little bite and so on. I mean, that's the way the world's driven us, and we're trying to um, reestablish and re-engage in the long-form conversation. And I'm so thankful that you have given us this chunk of your day. And but when the long-form conversation is all done, when Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke's gospel recorded, and at the end of the whole thing, that you could say, well, all that to say. That was Jesus having dinner with us. <laughs> you know, so I'm asking you, Joe, all that to say, what do you want to say? If you could just have, if you just had this moment to speak to the world, what do you think is uh, on your heart that, that you feel like this is important for people to hear? So many ways to go, but. There are so many. Um, I would say something I've said before, but it still seems relevant. Um, Every generation has to ask themselves how they'll respond to the challenges and the opportunities of their day. The things that are happening in their society, in their community, on their watch. Um, every generation gets a chance to do that. But I think, I think um, life invites us to as well. I think God invites us to. And the thing is, he is still making all things new. He is still renewing. He is still wanting to bring to interrupt and disrupt and engage our world with life and goodness and beauty and redemption. Um, and he, we have always been invited to have an active role in that. How will you get involved? My impression is that Joe has been consumed by the idea of, of exercising what God has given us to influence the world for the good, yeah. the salt and light concepts of the kingdom. And that's what you've just here put on the table once more. We all have to ask, don't we? How are we going yeah. to influence our world? Yeah. And I want to thank you, Joe, for being a voice of influence. And uh, as I met up with you before we got onto this conversation, you have in ways you wouldn't know, and I wouldn't expect you to know, but you have already spoken into our world. And you have been helping to frame and inspire people that I know. And I just want to encourage you. You are heard. And thanks for allowing us to hear you today. Thank you so much. What a gift it's been to have some time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, make sure you get that ugly coat on before you go outside Minneapolis in the middle of the winter. Oh, that is that is happening. <laughs> yes, for sure. Right. <laughs> thanks so much, Joe. Godspeed. Thank you. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs>